The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Spiritual inventory part four, there's a handout of the day. If you have a handout from the last two sermons that I did, it's the same one. Uh, we're going to proceed. We've already done uh, numbers one through ten. Taking spiritual inventory part four, are you saved? Today we're going to be looking at 11 through 18. And maybe we'll even finish 11 through 18. After I do my long introduction, we'll see if we... I think we will. We started the service three minutes late today for whatever... Why? Because you're out in the fellowship hall chatting, having great fellowship. So we didn't start till 10.33, so I, I'm going to recoup my three minutes. <laughs> Use every minute. So if we are dismissed at 12.03, you can't complain. I didn't go over. 11 through 18. So regarding spiritual inventory, if you're visiting, you might find uh, the topic, because you're going through quite challenging uh, 11 through 18. If you don't have a handout, just take notes, follow along in the Bible. It might prove helpful as we look at key scriptures. Uh, I printed this handout four weeks ago. So I was settled in my convictions and what I wanted to say four weeks ago about this. And each week, reviewing it, praying through it afresh and anew, even this week, even last night, even this morning, so even though it's been written down for four weeks. So just so you know, if one of these 11 through 18 points that I make jolts you a little bit or surprises you a little bit or, whoa, I've never heard that, or, whoa, is that true? Did you really mean to say that, Pastor Cliff? Yeah, I did. I've had it written down there for four weeks, and I've thought about it a lot longer than that. So that's just kind of a, a warning ahead of time. Some of you might... Find some of these challenging or new information. That's been the case so far as we've been doing this series on spiritual inventory. Think about it. It's kind of scary. There are, I mentioned how there are churches and denominations that will tell you, don't ever let anybody question your faith, and don't you ever question your faith by asking the question, am I a Christian, or evaluating yourself, or taking, in other words, they say you should never take spiritual inventory. You just assume... Uh, that you're saved when you signed the dotted line when you were five years old and now you're 55 years old. You should never question that, never take inventory, never do an objective evaluation because then you're undermining and questioning God's promises. That is not true. And so we already laid the foundation of why we're doing this because the Bible commands us to take spiritual inventory. It's all over the Bible. We saw that. We laid out the key verses, uh, particularly Paul in 2 Corinthians, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, and other places where uh, the Spirit of God said through the Apostle Paul, examine yourself. He's talking to Christians, professing Christians. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. So he said it twice. And then we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5. This command is all over Scripture. So we need to evaluate ourselves. We've had uh, this going through this. It's, it's chased some people away here from the church doing this. I know that for a fact. It's chased, it's repelled some people. I didn't chase them away. It's the truth of the Bible that chased them away. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. They didn't want to be confronted and challenged with God's scripture and the command of the spiritual discipline to, in an ongoing manner, evaluate yourself to see whether you are in the faith. So not only has the word of God chased some people away, uh, this series has also attracted some people. You have a couple people left the church who were visiting and checking out our church and said, this church is not for me, it's too scary. Yes, Acts chapter 5, that happened. 
but what's kind of interesting is I've been monitoring the uh, attendance here at the church Sunday to Sunday for the last five weeks, and the attendance has been going up, even with this hardcore, uh, aggressive preaching from God's Word, which reminds me of when we planted the church, Grace Bible Fellowship, 17 years ago, we took the uh, elders in training that are still mostly here. We went through Mark Dever's book on the church, and I'll, just, I'll never forget a paragraph in there where he said, if you're planning a church, just uh, preaching is the main thing, getting God's truth out there, and it, just preach the word. Preach the Bible as is. Preach it objectively, clearly, accurately, authoritatively, unashamedly, and God will do amazing things. What will he do? He will attract some people who desire God's word, and he will repel others. And Mark ever said, that's a good thing. In other words, let the chips fall where they may, as God is doing his work on people's hearts. So we don't apologize for the Bible and God's word. That needed to be said in light of some questions that we have received. Another question that I've received uh, that I... It's a fair question, it's a legitimate question, but it needs an answer. And the question was, can we, actually it was rhetorical, can we really know for certain that we're saved? Because this person was saying, we can't. So really they were saying, no, you can't know for sure if you're a Christian. You can't know that with certainty. Um, and I've had that statement made to me before by professing Christians and one in particular told me that this is true because we know that postmodernism is true, that nobody knows anything for sure. And I was like, no, that's not true. Uh, we'll see that from the Bible. If you believe that, you're making Jesus a liar because one of Jesus' favorite statements when he taught publicly was, Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, says the King James, Amen, Amen. Uh, translated in the English is truly, truly. It's emphatic because he says it two times, and then he makes a statement. That comes right out of the Old Testament. And what he's saying, certainly, certainly, that's what it means. Rock solid, you can count on it. Rock solid, you can count on it. Definitively and ultimately, this is true, and you can know it. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. Every time you see Jesus say that, he is guaranteeing that if you listen and hear God's truth, you can know with absolute certainty what is being taught is true. And if you believe it, it can also be true of you. So I needed to deal with that one because I've heard that leaking around, not just at this church, but just in Christianity the last 20 years with postmodernism and Christian versions of it that you can't know anything with certainty. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. So uh, with that, let's go to Matthew 13. And I just want to read this by way of introduction to remind us of why we're doing a spiritual evaluation, taking spiritual inventory, the wisdom of God, so that this doesn't happen to you. Matthew 13, uh, Jesus is telling parables to disciples. We don't know how many. It could be hundreds, could be thousands. So in Matthew 13, you don't have a Bible. Just listen carefully. Simple parable. Jesus spoke many things to disciples, listeners. They weren't all believers. Many of them were not believers, but they were fascinated with Jesus because he made free food. That's kind of cool. <laughs> and he spoke many things to these people in parables, stories with a point saying, and here's the parable. Behold, get this, pay attention. This is really important. You might not even believe it, but here it is. Behold, that's what that means. 
The sower went out to sow. Who's the sower? The sower is a Christian. The sower is God. The sower could be an evangelist who's a true Christian. The sower is the one who goes out and plants the seed. He sows the seed. He throws the seed. What's the seed? The seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save the message. So the sower. The sower could be you if you're really a Christian as you do the work of evangelism. The sower could be God himself as the dispenser of truth. Behold, the sower went out to sow, to plant seeds. What is he planting seeds on? He is planting seeds, so this could be an evangelist, planting the seeds of the gospel on human hearts. There's four kinds of soil in this parable. They represent four different kinds of human hearts. There's only one out of those four that is a receptive heart that embraces the truth of the gospel and gets saved. The other three are quasi-pseudo-Christian hearts. They're not true. But on the surface, they look like it. So behold, the sower went out to sow the gospel, the truth, And as the evangelist sowed the seed of the gospel, some seeds fell on the road of the sideway. That's not where you plant seeds. They're not going to last long. That's the first heart. It's a hard heart beside the road. And the birds came and they took the seeds away. The gospel was snatched up, gone. Other seeds of the gospel fell on different kinds of hearts, rocky places. That's soil, but underneath about an inch is hard slate stone so if it does sprout and grow it's not going to grow long because the roots can't penetrate the stone that's the second kind of heart rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up the plant did but because they had no depth of soil they died verse six but when the sun had risen they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away then the third heart that gets the truth of the gospel verse seven other seeds of the gospel fell among thorns. This is uh, with plants in a garden, but there are thorns, thistles, and weeds mixed in. And the thorns came up and choked out the good plant. Then heart number four, verse eight, and other seeds of the gospel fell on good soil. That's a receptive heart. A good heart, what's that? That is a heart prepared by God and his Holy Spirit with the calling of God that a person might truly hear, understand, believe, and be saved. And others fell on the good soil, the receptive heart, the believing heart, and it yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then Jesus goes on to explain in detail the meaning of the parable, which I just summarized for you. But the point is, the gospel goes out to everybody. Some people embrace it and say, oh, I believe, I believe. But many times when they say, I believe, that is a superficial, shallow, illegitimate profession of faith. They are not truly saved. And if you read the parable carefully, well, how do you know the false from the true in these four instances? Because all four categories of people are saying, oh, I believe the gospel. I I believed in Jesus. I trusted in Jesus. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand. And those could be sincere or those could be insincere. There's only one thing that really uh, exposes whether they were true or not according to the parable, and that's In every case, it's the the issue of time. Time is what reveals what is true in all four of these instances. It's over time that they saw the plant die. It's over time that they saw it get choked out. It's over time that they saw that it bloomed, blossomed, and produces fruit. It it was over time. So you're talking a pattern of life, the trajectory, the long term. That's That's key to evaluating your own life and fruit in your life and the legitimacy of your profession in Christ. So we don't want to be like the three false soils who thought they believed in the gospel, understood the gospel, followed Jesus, 
for whatever reason, but they were illegitimate reasons and they didn't fully understand and they, are, they weren't saved in the end. Maybe some of them were the ones cursing Jesus at his crucifixion, crucify him, crucify him, when earlier they said they were his disciple following him, eating his free food. Or maybe some of those end up in Matthew 7 when they said, oh, we believed in you, Jesus. Lord, Lord, did we not believe in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Calls him wicked and says, depart from me. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, to avoid that uh, self-evaluation. We don't want to be self-deceived, but what we do want... And if you're a true believer, if you're truly regenerate, if you are truly born again and regenerate, that means you're one of the elect of God. And the promise of Scripture is that if you are regenerate and a true believer, the whole point of going through self-evaluation and inventory is to grow your faith, to make you more confident, to to gain assurance. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, based on the promises of God, it is your right as a Christian to have assurance of your faith. That is encouraging. That's the goal for the believer. So hopefully, those of you who are truly saved, after part one, part two, and part three, going over these principles, you've been encouraged and you've been made more secure in your faith and your assurance instead of becoming unsettled. I know that I have. This is a fresh evaluation for me as well. And after doing this for three weeks and keep reading, I, I'm more assured of my faith today than I was three weeks ago. I'm more assured of my faith today than I was 30 years ago. The first two years of my Christian life, man, I was really unsure. I had all kinds of problems thinking I lost my salvation. I sinned against God in, in an unforgivable manner. And, and I really struggled for a good one to five years of my early Christian life. And at some point... Getting to know the scriptures and the promises of God and seeing fruit in my life and being encouraged by other believers and a long pattern of life, I grew in my assurance and security in keeping with what God's promise is. So that is an issue that I don't really struggle with anymore, the security of my salvation. I am absolutely confident that I am saved, and it is all of God's doing, his grace in my life. It's the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his love for sinners. That's wherein lies my confidence. If you're not there, but you're truly a Christian, you can get there, and that's God's intent for you. He wants you to grow in your assurance and confidence. If you're not truly saved, he doesn't want you to grow in assurance. He doesn't want you to be self-deceived. So what should this should be doing for those people who think they're Christians and not, this should be exposing chinks in your armor, blind spots, so that you stop, pause, yellow flag, wait a minute, whoa. Am I truly born again? Am I truly saved? Let me read this verse. You don't need to turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to Christians, professing Christians. So be like writing to all of us here. And he says, because Christ has saved you, then practice these godly virtues, self-control, perseverance, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 10. Therefore, brethren, fellow believers... Be all the more diligent. This is a key verb here. Christian, this is a command. Be diligent. That means there's a sense of urgency here. There is a sense of eagerness here. Willingness. Be all the more diligent to do what? To make certain. This is a verb. It's a reflexive verb. And it means it's you do it. I do it. This is an ongoing, regular, spiritual discipline that we need to do. Be all the more diligent to make certain, and the word for certain, another specific word, refers to legal 
validity, legal confirmation, absolute assurance. This is something you can pursue and actually possess. That's awesome. So be all the more diligent, Christian, to make certain about God's calling and choosing you. Some translations say, be diligent to make certain about God's election in your life. So can you know that you are elect? Yeah, actually you can. If you do it the biblical way. So be sure of your calling. Be sure of your election. Have assurance that you are elect. How do we do that, Peter? Well, I'm trying to show you the scriptures that help us do that. Peter gives us a little bit of a clue. He says, be sure about your election. Well, well how do you do that, Peter? That's hard to do. Uh, well, for as long as you practice these things, there's another key verb in the present tense. That means it's an ongoing, regular pattern of your life. So again, this is the long term. This is the uh, walk of your life, the direction of your life over the long haul. Patterns of behavior, the trajectory of what's coming out in your life. For as long as you practice it or literally continue to do these things, these Christian virtues on a regular basis, then you will never stumble. In other words, there's some evidence there that you can look at and be encouraged. Oh, okay, wow. Apparently, the Spirit of God is producing fruit in my life. This is encouraging. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord. And then that is ratified or confirmed with the indwelling testimony, subjective testimony of the Holy Spirit in your heart because He lives in you. And then He gives you this supernatural, internal, subjective kind of assurance that no one else can. You can't even do that. As He assures your inner soul, you belong to God. God is your Father. You can call God Abba. That's Romans 8. So that, that is supernatural assurance. So it's not just exercises we do. It's exercises we do in keeping with the word in tandem or in concert along with the work of the Holy Spirit who also, it's his job to work on showing us assurance as well. So we work along with the Holy Spirit. This is called synergism. Working with the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. So... With that, just wanted to... Oh, and then one last one in light of the first question that I, somebody brought up. Oh, you, can, you can't really know that you're saved ultimately. Well, actually you can. First John 4, I'll just read this verse too. Uh, John's writing to believers. I told you the last time two weeks ago that first John was written to, for the purpose of examining your life with eight tests. Here's eight spiritual tests. Examine yourself, Christian, to find out whether you truly know God or not. So at the end, as he's finishing all of his tests... He says, if you pass the test and do the test, verse 13, then you can be assured and have assurance. By this, we know. He's talking about Christian. We know. It's emphatic. It's dogmatic. We know. We can have this understanding and truth. We know that we abide in God. We know that he abides in us. Why? Because he has given us his Holy Spirit. So there's, again, there's the key of the ultimate security and assurance we have is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we can know. Uh, he goes on, verse 17, By this, love is perfected with us as Christians, so that may, we may have confidence. Again, God wants us to have confidence in our salvation. He goes on in chapter 5. Listen to this amazing verse, 5.13. These things I have written to you, John the Apostle says, these things I have written to you who believe as Christians in the name of the Son of God, so that for the purpose of that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. I'll read it again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So there it is. I, I could read so many other verses uh, where God makes that clear and incredible promise for us. So let's continue, and let's go now to 11 through 18. If you were not here for the first two where we covered 1 through 10, we have those available on video. You can, you can access those. And what we're doing here is following the mandate of 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. And here's some ways that we can do it, some questions that we can ask that will help with biblical answers. Uh, so far we've asked, do you know the true gospel? Do you believe that true gospel? Do you trust only Jesus Christ and his work for salvation and trust in nothing else for your salvation? Number four, do you hate your sin? You should. You've got it living in you. I've got it living in me all the time. It's not, do you hate acts of sin when you do them? That is not the question. It's, do you hate the sin that lives in you? And it's there all the time, Romans 7. Number five, is there spiritual fruit in your life? Not just fruit. Everybody has fruit. Is there spiritual fruit in your life? Number six, do you love or desire God's word, the truth, the Bible? Or does the truth at times offend you, incense you? Number seven, are you submissive to God's commands in Scripture? Number eight, are you submissive to authority? All authority is ordained of God. Number nine, do you love Christian people? Number 10, do you desire to be with God's people in fellowship on a regular basis? You should. It's a sign of spiritual health. So let's go on. Uh, 11 through 18, as we keep asking key questions. Number 11, do you love the church? Do you love the church? Uh, I ask this because Jesus loves the church. We need to love what Jesus loves. Do you love the church? I'm not talking about the individual local church. So I'm not saying, do you love Creekside Bible Church? That is not the question. It's the true church of God, the church of all the redeemed through all the ages since Acts chapter 2 that Christ has been gathering and building. And yes, they do uh, manifest themselves in local churches. That's, that's part of it. But the bigger question is, do you love the church of Jesus Christ? The only institution on planet earth that the, the Lord Jesus himself promised that he would build and perpetuate and protect, not just throughout all human history, but it will spill over even into eternity, and that is the church of Christ. Do you love the church? Because there are Christians who undermine the church, disparage the, the church, um, say bad things about the church, critical things about the church. Every time I hear it, I, I just, it pains me. Unfortunately, the I think I hear it more in Christian books that are written and Christian pastors that are preaching and Christian conferences where I go hear Christians speak. And this is what it sounds like. Um, a, a pastor or Bible teacher will get up there and they will talk about the church just isn't doing its job or the church is failing and the church is compromised and the church isn't doing this and the church isn't doing that. I'm thinking, well, number one, you don't know that. What do you mean the church isn't doing that? The church just isn't loving orphans. The church isn't just... It's not doing its job. It's not doing the Great Commission. Actually, the church is. You've obviously never been to Tanali in India and see those godly people there. Maybe this person's never been to the church down in South Africa where Pastor Samuel is doing an amazing, faithful job in a very difficult context. Or there's, God's got his churches all over the world and faithful pastors, most of whom we don't even know their names or what they're doing. And there are plenty of incredibly faithful Christians and churches all over the world. And we are not in a position to be judging the church. 
Jesus is the judge of the church, and he already gave his judgment in Revelation 2 and 3. Nothing else needs to be said. We have no right to judge the church because we're not the Lord of the church, the head of the church, over the church. We are a part of the church if you're a Christian. So be discerning and listen. You know, when you hear your favorite pastor, preacher, or Christian book, and they start taking pot shots at the church, it's easy to do. Criticize the church and their ministries and what they're doing and what they're not doing. And then sadly, many times what follows out is elevation of self or your own church because you got to you got the corner of truth, uh, supposedly. So that's something to be discerning. Our attitude as a true Christian is, is see, we should see the church as the bride of Jesus Christ, the bride that belongs to him first and foremost. It is his prized possession. I put the verse down, Acts 20, 28. Jesus loves the church so much, he shed his blood for the church. He died for the church. He sacrifices for the church. He protects the church. He's growing the church. He's tending to the church. That's... Ephesians chapter 4, it goes in details. It goes over into Ephesians chapter 5. Literally, what is Jesus doing? The church is in progress. Does the church have uh, failings and compromise and immaturity and yes, and warts? Yet Jesus is fully aware and he's tending to that. Maybe you or maybe, maybe we're part of the problem. But Ephesians 4 is the promise that he's maturing and growing the church all throughout church history leading to the culmination of perfect unity, perfect glory, perfect beauty, absolute perfection on wedding day when Jesus marries the church at the end of the age and that the reception goes on into eternity forever. The glorious, precious bride of Christ. That's Revelation 21, 1 and following. In all her glory, all her splendor, all her perfection. During the course of this 2,000 years of church history, we are all, if you're a Christian, contributing to the growth of the body of Christ by your spiritual gift, by your service to the church. Do you love the church? Well, if you're a Christian, the answer obviously is yes, and you should never badmouth the church. Number 12, are you a forgiving person? This is a basic test to see whether you're a Christian. Are you a forgiving person? Uh, forgiving as in given in Matthew 6 and Colossians 3 in the present tense. That forgiveness and the ability to forgive is an ongoing pattern and reality in your life. To forgive is divine, they say, right? To err is human. To forgive divine. Now, that's another little proverb that's not in the Bible, so don't be confused. But it is true. To err is human. Forgive divine. God really is the only one who knows how to forgive supernaturally in a real, legitimate, and key legal manner. And he's laid down the process whereby we as sinners can also experience true forgiveness and the ability to forgive. Only a Christian, only a born-again, regenerate Christian who has the Spirit of God living in them has the capacity to forgive like God forgives. Did you know that an unbeliever cannot forgive? Can't forgive like God forgives. Absolutely impossible. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them. They have no legal basis by which to forgive anybody. They can say, I forgive you. And under common grace, because every human being is made in the image of God, there is a quasi-forgiveness that you can give as an unbeliever to get along. But that's not ultimate, supernatural, spiritual forgiveness that God requires that has that legal basis and foundation based on death and shed blood, which is the only thing that appeases God and warrants true forgiveness. 
So as a Christian, you've been born again, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and so one of the new virtues about you or the new things about you, when it says that when you're a Christian, you're a new creation, old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now, if you get saved later in life, like I did or some people, it's very stark, the contrast. Like, I got saved when I was age 19. I knew exactly when I got saved, and the next day I knew I was saved. I was like, wow, this is cool. This is dramatic. And these things that I had in my heart, they're not there anymore. I don't hate this person anymore. I have a capacity to forgive. I have a desire to forgive I've never had before in my life. That is the promise of Jesus. So for some, it's very stark. It's very clear. Some of you who have grown up in the church, and that's all you've heard your whole life, and you believed in Jesus at age 2, and age 7, and age 12, and age 22, and it was subtle, little by little, and that's been your worldview ever since. You don't see that stark contrast necessarily between being unregenerate and regenerate. Maybe it's a little more difficult to discern, but no doubt it's growing, ever growing in your heart if you're a true Christian. So you should be able to see fruit that you have a forgiving heart. Hebrews 12 says, examine yourself, because if you have bitterness in your heart, that's the opposite of forgiveness. If you're hanging on to stuff, he warns, that'll turn into a root of bitterness. It'll destroy your soul. Might even be indication there's a yellow flag that, whoa, are you forgiven? Do you know Christ? Listen to this hard statement in Matthew 6, Jesus after the Lord's Prayer. If you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whoa, that's startling. Do you understand the implications of that? The only way to get into heaven is to have total forgiveness of sins. You cannot get into heaven with one unforgiven sin. And yet Jesus said, if you do not forgive other people, then your Father in heaven, will not forgive your offenses. You will not, he will not forgive your sins. You can't get into heaven. Your soul is damned. So it's really a diagnostic statement that Jesus is making is, you better examine your heart. If you're not a forgiving person, you don't belong to God. That's what he's saying. Forgiveness, this is just basic of the Christian life. Colossians 3, I love it, verse 13. This is a command for every Christian. Keep on forgiving each other. Debbie and I, my wife, we had a mentor who said, this is, the, this is the marriage verse. Let me read it to you, young married couple. Memorize it. Live by it. Practice it the rest of your marriage if you want a successful long-term marriage. Colossians 3.13. Forgiving each other, just as the Lord Jesus forgave you, so must you do. You must. And notice the... The standard by which you forgive. It's not just forgive. It's forgive the way the Lord has forgiven you. How has the Lord forgiven you? Supernaturally, divinely, in a heavenly manner, based on a legal transaction of the death of Jesus Christ. There's legal basis, legal, legal warrant from Almighty God himself to provide and allow and enable that forgiveness. So we forgive as Christ has forgiven. Are you a forgiving person? Number 13, do you long to see Jesus? Do you long to see Jesus? This is the mark of a Christian. Again, this is all over the Bible, 2 Timothy 4.8, talking to believers, to all who have loved Jesus' appearing. You love the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prospect of Jesus coming uh, to this earth as he promised he would is the greatest desire of your heart, or it should be. should be. It gets clouded out and smothered by other stuff, like the newest Hollywood movie that's coming out next week that I long for, waiting to see that, or whatever else. 
What do you long for? That's really the question. What, what's your heart's longing for? What do you, right today, what are you most excited about happening in the imminent future? Whether it's tonight, tomorrow, or next week. If the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is number 19 on your list or didn't make your list, wow. All the need for spiritual inventory. Many of you that got saved later in life have the testimony that when you got saved, you just had this indelible, impassioned, ongoing, continual, over-the-top desire for the return of Jesus Christ. You were so excited because you read the Bible for the first time. Jesus can return. He said he could come. He said he's coming quickly and soon. He could come tomorrow. And then all the other Christians have been Christians a long time. It's kind of, yeah, yeah, you'll get over it. Give it a few years. You'll get over it. Isn't that sad? But this is a basic desire of the Christian's heart. A longing to see Jesus return, to take over as King of kings and Lord of lords, to make all things right, to be with him, to be freed from sin, to be with the saints. Man, that's awesome. We love his appearing. Philippians 3.20, Paul said that we are eagerly waiting for a Savior. We're eagerly waiting. We're just anticipating, Lord Jesus, come. As a matter of fact, that's how the early saints prayed, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. Maranatha, it's two Aramaic words. We translate it in English as one word, Maranatha. It's Marana, that's Lord. Tha, come. Aramaic. There's a little Aramaic lesson for you. Come, Lord. Paul prayed that. Come, Lord. Come quickly, Jesus. It's a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Maranatha. That should be the prayer of a Christian's heart. What are you longing for? What are you looking forward to most? Oh, so Pastor Cliff, I can't enjoy anything in this life? I can't look forward to the NFL season. No, I'm not saying that. I am looking forward to the NFL season. Thank you very much. That's not what I'm saying. We just need a reminder. We've got to have the right priorities. This is the living Jesus. He's our mediator. He's up in heaven. He's working for us 24-7. His work is not done. Come, Lord Jesus. Number 14, do you talk to God regularly? Do you talk to God regularly? Why should we pray? You know, if you heard the question, it's pretty common. Well, if God knows everything and he's omniscient, why should we pray since he already knows? That's a fair question. It's a legitimate question. The problem is, if you think that just praying is all about getting stuff, God, God knows what I need, so he's going to give it to me anyway if I need it and he wants to, so why do I need to ask him because he already knows what I need? And he's either going to give it to me or not, so I'm not going to pray. I don't need to pray. Or he already knows what I'm going to say, so I don't need to say it, so I don't need to pray. So omniscience nullifies the mandate and need to pray. No, it doesn't, because you need to think about salvation in a totally different way. What is salvation? First and foremost, it is about knowing God. It's about a relationship. That's what It's a personal relationship. So in other words, if I want to have the deepest, most intimate personal relationship with somebody that I love the most, then the question is, should I talk to that person? (laughs) Because that's prayer. Prayer is talking to God. So do you want to cultivate the intimacy of your most personal, precious relationship of any person in the universe, which would be God? Then you need to be talking to him on a regular basis, like the psalmist. Read through the psalms, 150 psalms, and all these psalmists, they are talking to God continually, forevermore, about all kinds of stuff. When they're happy, when they're sad, when they're down, when they're up, when they're pleading, when they're wrestling, when they're rejoicing, when they're asking questions. But the the key there is they 
sensed and they knew they had a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Therefore, they're talking to him all the time. He's literally on your right shoulder, your left shoulder. Literally, in your mind, you can access God anywhere, anytime. Jonah is in the well, and what does he do? He knows God, and he prays to God while he's in the well. Dear God, get me out of this mess. God answered the prayer and got him out. So do you talk to God on a regular basis? Or do you just completely ignore God consciously on a regular basis? That's not good. You either don't have a relationship with God, or you're undermining, undercutting that relationship. That would be like being married and never talking to your spouse. And there are spouses who do that. Or that would be like living in a household and never talking to your siblings you're rubbing shoulders with all the time. Well, there are siblings who do that. And you're not cultivating a relationship, you're undermining it. So do you talk to God? Number 15, do you grieve at worldliness? Do you grieve at worldliness? Or you could also put in there, do you grieve at worldliness? I didn't give you the verse on do you talk to God. First uh, Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Talk to God all the time if you know him. Number 15, do you grieve at worldliness or immorality or blasphemy? Acts 17, 16. The Apostle Paul on his missionary journey going from city to city tells his team, hey, I'm going to go to Athens. I'll meet you there. Apparently there's a bunch of smart people there in Athens, all those uh, philosophers. He basically goes by himself he arrives at the city. It's a world-renowned, uh, famous city for hundreds of years by the time Paul got there, and they had all kinds of statues and temples. And He gets to the city, and he said the city, he looked at it on the hillside, and the city was filled with idols. They were religious idols. They were grotesque, sexually immoral idols for the grossest kind of worship. He'd never seen idolatry that rampant before, probably in his entire life as a Jew. He was aghast. He was sick in his gut. And it's testified in Acts 17, Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw the city full of... He was provoked in his spirit. On the, there was just a, un, a righteous indignation just over the top, smoke coming out of his ears. Wow. Why? Because of the immorality and the utter blasphemy of God the Creator as they're worshiping false gods. And he didn't stand for it. He wasn't so callous or too cowardly not to say anything about it. He challenged those people in that city. He proclaimed the gospel. He challenged their view of their wrong God. He represented Christ well. And there was something going on in his spirit that was clear that shows he, did not, he was not desensitized or callous. And that's a challenge for us, right? We live in this very sinful, fallen world. And some of you have these occupations where whether you're in the military or whatever, where you're a lot of, you know, around a lot of, whatever the occupation is. could be just locally at Google and Apple or whatever else. Uh, if you're around a bunch of unbelievers all the time in this woke culture, then there are just outright attacks on your faith and on Christianity and on the worldview, and you're around it all the time. And some other, it's, it's hard not to get used to it, where you literally become indifferent to the stark contrast between the unbelieving worldview and your own precious Christian worldview. And the contrast is diminished for whatever reason. Because you're used to it. The more exposure, it, then it becomes normal. And the devil knows that. All I got to do is keep saying it and keep saying it and keep doing it and keep doing it. That's how you normalize immoral behavior. You watch the commercial 75 times and it's, oh, ho-hum. 
some gross, blasphemous commercial. Oh, ho-hum, I'm not going to turn the channel this time. That we're susceptible to that as fallen, finite, compromising human beings. We need to be like Paul, fresh slate. We need to get upset, provoked in our spirit. When we see worldliness wherever it is, immorality wherever it is, we are not going to tolerate it. Blasphemy. We hear somebody say God or Jesus in your presence or wherever it is. So it's a good thing if uh, that bothers you when you hear it or see it. It's a good sign. Number 17, do you have a secret life? Uh, What I mean by that is do you have a secret sinful life, a secret uh, evil life, compromised life? You're kind of coddling and trying to hide from everybody because you're also trying to do the Christian thing over here. Paul says in Ephesians 5, the things they do in secret, that's the word he used, in the dark and in the secret, so-called professing Christians. Boy, this is a really important one. Uh, Pastor Derek and I, we did a a podcast on this topic. So-called Christians living secret lives, and at some point they're exposed, whether it's Joshua Harris, you know, shocked the world, the Christian world of the guy that wrote, I kissed dating goodbye, and then we find out he, he, he kissed Christianity goodbye. It's just one example. Um, and it's like, oh, wow, this happened suddenly. No, you just don't know. That was going on. There were compromises going on for decades, actually, when all the truth comes out. So uh, we see this as the years go by more and more. Every t- I've said before that every time I go back to the Shepherds Conference, so I graduated from this. I went to the seminary in 1989, Master Seminary, and study with all these guys and go back to the Shepherds Conference down there at Grace Community Church every year. And just about every year, it's kind of sad. It's exciting to see everybody, but then you hear a story of, oh, yeah, so-and-so that was in your class. Yeah, he's not a Christian anymore. He's an atheist. Oh, I thought he was a pastor. Well, he was. He left the church and left Jesus. Wow. Left his wife and his kids, too. Double wow. Sad. He was never saved in the first place. He was deceived. And there was a long pattern of a secret life that they... Are hiding. So this might be true of somebody here with 240 people that I'm addressing today. It's very likely, very possible statistically that maybe one of you or some of you here have a secret life you're trying to keep hidden. Who knows what it looks like? could be that you're stealing money from your employer or from the IRS or you've got some sexual liaison on the side that you think you can manage for a period of time where it's pornography or stuff on the internet. Um, this goes on. We, we are all vulnerable and susceptible, every single one of us. Take heed lest ye fall. That was Paul's warning. We're no better than anybody else. But this is what I mean by when you go to communion, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says, don't eat the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. This is an example of an unworthy manner. If you, if you have a secret life and you're not confessing it, admitting it, forsaking it, and you still take communion, that's unworthy. God's wrath will be on you. Now, if you're at communion and you have a sin you're aware of, I uh, yelled at my spouse yesterday or my kid, um, Lord, forgive me, and I, I'm, I told them I forgive them, or I need to go after church and tell them, then, yeah, you can take communion. So there, there's a difference there. Secret life. So usually when some gross secret has been exposed, and I hear about it, sometimes people say, oh, this is the beginning of something. I'm like, no, this is the end of something. This is the fruition of a long pattern of a deep secret. God said, be sure your sin will find you out. Can't hide it from him. 
The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good all the time. Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from his sight. He sees it all. Proverbs 28.13, he who conceals or hides his sins will not prosper. It, it, it's not going to last. Time will reveal it. You will be exposed. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses, admits it, and forsakes it, they will find compassion. They will find forgiveness. They will find restoration from God. They will find healing. That's what God promises. That's the good news. doesn't matter what the sin is. You can't really out the forgiveness of God if you are truly repentant. Where, the sin abound, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Isn't that amazing? Good news of the gospel. Joshua 7.1, remember Achan in the, the land of Israel in your Old Testament? And Joshua's taken the troops, the two million Israelites, across the Jordan River, and they're supposed to take over the whole land of Canaan, section by section, city by city, following God's directions, and they go to the city called AI, and they get defeated, and Joshua's like, whoa, what's up with that? We're supposed to win. We got God on our side. And the reason they lost is because there was a compromiser with a secret life in their midst. His name was Achan. He was an Israelite. God said, before you go into the city, here's a ban. You can't take any of the stuff. You can't take the gold. You can't take uh, the possessions. You can't plunder the town. Just go in, take the town, but don't take anything. And then Achan, who was a Jew, who was a Hebrew, an Israelite, and he had a family, and they had a tent, and he saw all the good... Uh, booty and that was left behind, the gold and everything else, when they were taken over the town, he decided he was going to heist it when nobody was looking, and that's what he did. Oh, okay, nobody's looking. And so he's taken gold, he's taken a precious jacket here, takes it, and then he goes into his tent, and he buries it because he thought, oh, nobody saw that. Well, God saw it. And God exposed him. And Joshua pointed his finger in uh, Achan's face. Give God glory and repent. And he did, but he still got stoned to death as a consequence, along with his family. Joshua chapter 7, it's, it's a true story, a historical story, and uh, a just story. You read that, well, that wasn't fair, God. No, yeah, actually it was. Sin warrants the death penalty from God Almighty, who is holy. It's sobering. Achan, Achan who was mistaken. For Fakin, who ended up Bacon. Anyway, I could go on. So hopefully you don't have a secret life, and if you do have a secret life, you need to forsake it today. Today. Talk to somebody. Talk to God first. And you've got to confess. That's James 5. You've got to confess it to a person. Number 17, do you get angry at God? Do you get angry at God? Well, if you do, that's a problem. Uh, Christians aren't supposed to get angry at God. Here's another way to ask the question. Is it okay to get angry at God? I'd say absolutely not. Emphatically, no. You can search the scriptures in vain. You're never going to find any scripture that says, oh, by the way, you can get mad at God or encourage you to get mad at God. It's not in the Bible. The Bible says just the opposite. Think of all the imperatives and commands given to us about how we should treat God and our attitude towards God. It's not get angry at God. What is it? Submit to God, humble yourself before God, confess your sins to God, love God, believe in God, Jesus said in John 14, believe in God and also in me, believe in God, not get angry at God. 
Why is it wrong or a sin to get angry at God? Because if you're getting angry at God and acting out on that anger, what are you doing? You're accusing God. That's what to get angry at God means is you're accusing God. It's the same. You're blaming God. And you don't accuse anybody of anything unless you're accusing them of wrongdoing. You're accusing them of sin. God is perfect. God is holy. God is sinless. God never does anything wrong. God is the exact opposite of sinful and wrong. God is good. It's all over the scriptures. God is good. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is patient. God is kind. God is just. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And all the verses that say God is good, that means a perfect ultimate good. God never does anything wrong. If you have an inclination and you call yourself a Christian to be angry at God, then you've got bad theology. That's what it comes down to. And you need to correct it. You need to fix it. You need to make a major dramatic change and do some self-heart evaluation. There are even severe warnings in Scripture about this attitude of being angry at God. I hear, I hear Christians say that. Oh, it's okay to be angry at God. The psalmist does it. No, he doesn't. Does the psalmist wrestle with God, question God? have faith at times, and have lapses about God? Yeah, that's all over the Psalms. And if you read them very carefully, where particularly David is questioning God, and he's doubting God, and he's weeping, and then you go through, and at the end of this Psalm, typically there's a resolution. Oh God, I trust in you. Oh God, I saw the light. Oh Lord, thank you for rescuing me. It's very typical. And it's not David getting angry at God. It's a really important one. We don't talk about it. Enough. So I hear people saying, oh yeah, I get angry at God. It's okay to get, get angry at God. The psalmist got angry at God. No, they didn't. And if you're ever counseling somebody, don't ever counsel a Christian. It's okay to be mad at God or angry at God. Typically that might be if they lose a loved one in a tragedy or cancer. And Oh, I understand. You're, are you angry at God? Yeah, oh, that's okay. No, it's not. Being angry at God is accusing God of wrongdoing and sin. Being angry at God is the exact opposite of faith. What does that person need more than anything? They need faith in God, His promises, His goodness, His resolution. So you need to go to God's Word. Romans 15, where does faith come from? Scripture. Romans 10, 17, where does faith come from? Scripture and only Scripture, God's living Word. If you have a problem, you struggle with anger towards God, you need to stop, pause, Lord, and repent and confess it, first of all. God, that is wrong, that is sinful. Romans 9 is clear. Paul said, who are you, O man? He's talking to all of us. Who are you, O man, to question God, the sovereign maker? We have no right. Lamentations chapter 3 says the same thing. Who are you, sinful man, ever to question Almighty God? Who are you, in light of your sins, to question God? It's all over the Bible. We love God. We believe in God. We trust God. Is it okay to get angry in hard times? Yes. The Bible's clear. Ephesians 4. Be angry and sin not. So to get angry at sin is good. To get angry at good is sin. God is good. So anger can be legitimate. It's called righteous indignation. So redirect your anger at the right target. You can get, here's things you can get angry at. You can get angry at Satan. He's wicked and evil. Always. Irredeemably so. You can get angry at the world. You can get angry at the perpetrator. You can get angry at the sin. You can get angry at your own sin. You can get angry at hell. You can get angry at eternal death. So there's plenty to get angry about. And there's plenty of places to direct it. But at no time should a Christian ever direct anger towards God. 
Now, if this is new to you and you've been practicing this or thinking this all along, this is maybe a shock to you, maybe you're questioning it, and you're thinking in your mind, well, I don't know, I don't know if I agree with Pastor Cliff on that one. Well, then you've got a couple of challenges. Show me in Scripture where it encourages you as a Christian, get angry at God. Why would you even want to develop that kind of a theology and justify it from the Bible? It's not there. Job, uh, and then think about this. Have you been subjected to more trials, worse trials, to the degree that Job had? No, there's nobody in this, on this campus subjected to the trials that Job was subjected to. But Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 is very clear. When he lost all of his possessions, when he lost all ten of his children tragically, in a natural disaster, he didn't immediately blame God. God, what are you doing? Why did you do this? He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, it says his response was he shaved his head, he tore his clothes, he got on his face, and he worshipped God. That was his response. And then a few verses later, it says, in all of this, Job never sinned with his lips. And then there's one more temptation. Satan is allowed to torment Job himself physically with boils all over his body. And then guess who complained and got angry at God? Job's wife. She did. She got angry at God, and she told Job, oh, now look at you. Is this, you trust your God now? Curse God and die. That's anger at God. Did Job say, oh, yeah, thank you for the counsel? <laughs> no, he did what every godly husband should do, put the sinful wife in her place when it's called for, when she's blaspheming God. And he said, you speak as the foolish women. You're foolish. Why should I receive only good things from my maker? And not everything he sends my way. And then the next verse after that says, In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So that's about a scenario that is as clear as a bell, that it is never appropriate to get angry at God. This is huge. I can't even fathom getting angry at God, just to be honest with you. I have all kinds of problems and sins. And there are sins I have against God, lack of belief, lack of trust, whatever else. But I, consciously, since I've been saved at age 19, I can't ever remember getting angry at God. It just wasn't an option. I think my mind would go to, well, God probably doesn't exist before I'd get angry at God. Because I know what the Bible says about God. It's not his fault. The Bible's clear about sin and the curse and why bad things happen and why there's death. Well, why is there death? Why did this person die? Well, that's in the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. You eat, you die. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins dies. Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. It's clear. That's why people die. Uh, don't get angry at God. Number 18. Uh, this is a compliment to number 15. Are you comfortable with the world or are you comfortable in the world? Do you feel at home in the world? You shouldn't. You should feel like a fish swimming upstream. You should feel out of place. You should feel kind of off kilter. You should read the news every day like I do and think, man, every one of these headlines is terrible. I completely disagree with just about every commentator I read this morning. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, here it is, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the fallen world, the things of the world, the ideologies of the world, you're probably not a Christian. That's what that's, that's saying. There's a good test. Very clear. 
Bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Who are your best friends? Who are you hanging out with? Jesus was clear, John 7, 7. The world hates me. And if you follow me, the world will hate you. Do not love the world. Well, there we go. That's a lot of stuff. A lot to meditate upon. And I just encourage you to lay that before the Lord as you search your heart and pray to the Holy Spirit. Specifically, thanking Him for Him doing His job of confirming your salvation, of growing your assurance, of exposing our weaknesses. Lord, thank you. I thank you for exposing this weakness I had through that person who told me about this, and that really hurt my feelings, and I was offended, but thank you. And I need to grow in that area, Lord. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for this morning, this time of fellowship, to be with the saints, to sing to you, to give to you, and so many of our faithful saints serving you, helping build up and edify the precious body of Christ, the bride of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that those of us who are saved can be a part of the bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming at the end of world history, the greatest celebration of all. And thank you for these many truths in Scripture to guide us along, to help us objectively evaluate ourselves, because we want to walk with you in confidence and not be deceived. We need your help to that end. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.